it was before daybreak and Domini staffs calls wearing How's that? Calls wearing his wearing must I say it again? <laughs> it was early in the morning and Domini staff skulls wearing his big nightshirt and lying next to his wife Maria in a very big bed. I don't know about the nightshirt or the bed, but he's a big man. He was barely awake when down the passage of the pastori came and it was his son Dicky running and shouting Papa now he's a domine he said father father and the domine woke up said Dicky what is going on he said just have a look out the window and he was pointing towards the east, the Rankis, the little ridges, the hills surrounding the small village of Colesburg. And on the entire horizon, you could see men on horseback and their rifles. And as the sun emerged, they looked in different directions. And these people had surrounded the entire village, up in the hills, the Rankis, around the village. This was Commandant Grobler and his commando from the Free State. They had crossed the Orange River and they came over into Colesburg. Here's the Duomini. And this Commandant Grobler and his men galloped after descending from the ridges, galloped down the main street of Colesburg on the 14th of November, 1899. They had now effectively occupied this village. The war had been declared. Go back, please. on the 11th of October, just a few weeks before that. General Skuman also came with his commando from the Free State. They'd crossed the Orange, but he bypassed Colesburg and went towards Nauport, which is a smaller village to the south of Colesburg. At that time, General French and his 2,000 troops were moving from the south, from the harbours, along the railway line, towards Colesburg as well. But Skuman had turned around and also galloped into Colesburg at that time. 
as of that moment, when his horsemen came down the main street of Colesburg, the people of Colesburg, friends, neighbors, neighboring farmers, became MS. Up to then, this rather relaxed community experienced the ordinary ebb and flow of daily life in such a small town. They would gather in Church Street or at Market Square or at the general dealers. There was Donald's stores. There was also Dev Devlin's Masonic Hotel where they would have a pint or two. Incidentally, just a few hours after this, by mid-morning or so, that very Devlin, Richard Devlin, the owner of that Masonic Hotel, was leaning forward like this. And he had a cue in his hand. And then two men shouted at him from the door. He was playing billiards with a friend of his, a burger, a burger as they say, one of the Dutch-speaking locals, his friend, they were playing billiards. Here come two guys through the door with mousers and say, come with us, we're going to lock you up. He says, no, I'm not going, I'm, I'm still wearing my slippers from this morning and I'm about to sink that ball. He said, you're coming with us now? He said, no, I insist. And he sent one of his assistants who was standing in the corner to his bedroom and they fetched his boots and he sat down, took off his slippers, put on his boots and then invited them for a drink. And they accepted that. So the two guys with their mouses sat down with him, they had a drink and this gave him the opportunity to stuff his pockets with cigarettes, cigars and all sorts from behind his bar. Then they took him off, and you'll see a little bit more about that. So people were discussing this. This was just a, a conventional day in this village. Farmers discussing the price of wool. There had been a swarm of locusts who went through, and they had heard this distant thunder. Possibility of rain? A thunderstorm or what? As it turned out, Symbolically speaking, this distant, indistinct thunder was threatening in another way. Foreboding signals. Another sign that war was inevitable. Incidentally, people had been seeing at the junction, as they call it, it's a little side railway from the main station near Colesburg, people had been arriving. Um, from Joburg, going towards the coast. They saw in the newspaper, the Colesburg Advertiser, odd little passage indicating that there's some kind of trouble brewing. But the sure sign of what might be coming, they should have been attentive to this before. 
couple of months, be months before that already, arrived in Colesburg a bunch of royal engineers. They went down to Norvell's Pond, which is northeast of Colesburg, and they found 12 men there, policemen in fact. They found a fjord, affordability of the river at one spot. And they discussed this with police. They got information, said, is this water potable? Is it drinkable? Yes, but you get a bit of diarrhea at first until you get used to it. Now look at the detail furthermore. In Colesburg they found a town with about 500 inhabitants. 600. There's a post office. There's a telegraph office. There's a branch of Standard Bank, incidentally the second oldest in the country. Suitable campsites, supplies, sheep and cotton plentiful. And two bakers can supply a thousand two-pound loaves in 24 hours. There was even fuel for making fire. They called it mist. This mist, dung. Plentiful. You could buy that for 10 shillings a load. Mr. Cooper of the Masonic Hotel, that's uh, the manager then, seems to be a useful man. But the civil commissioner, Philpotts, rather lacks energy. There's the Colesburg advertiser. There's the thunder that I said. Travel and visitors, newspapers are hinting at this. And they had this personal column in the newspaper, said debating society or playing cricket or something like that. But in that column, it said rather interestingly, and that's not the whole sentence, the mayor of Colesburg, Mr. T.J. Pluman, and his wife, the original uh, message said, left Colesburg together. It also said rather unexpectedly, and they went to Cape Town on Wednesday evening on holiday. So the mayor got out of town when he saw what was happening. Rather cryptically, now look at this Colesburg advertiser. There's wedged between the Cycle Club News, the Debating Society, and the Table Talk column. That's a bit of Skinner, the gossiping kind of column. But it also had this. Numbers of people have been going down to the junction daily and nightly to see the crowded trains. And alarming rumors have from time to time been circulated. But most of them have been totally untrue. So, mobilization. I said before, General French was coming from the south, moving uh, towards Noport and intending to go as far as Colesburg initially. Um, again, people arriving, 1,200 people moving through town, trying to get out from the Orange Free State uh, Republic and the Transvaal Republic because of this ominous um, possibility of warfare. 130 men, local men, immediately joined the Boer forces in Colesburg. Within a day, they all got together. And the person who initiated this was 
commander, he became commander, eventually general, Herman Latagan of the farm Driefontein. Incidentally, that map that Mike wanted to remove is an 1890 map of the district of Colesburg. And most of these towns, these farms, you can still see on that old map, which is also indicative, incidentally, that the British were planning this way, way, way before war was actually declared. They had done all their homework uh, and just waiting for more troops to come up the railway line to assist French with his initial 2,000 troops. Now, these youngsters who came from overseas, incidentally, we got hold of 14 such letters that the privates of French, some of the people who were coming up the rail with French, wrote to home. Now, this is Private Potter. And look at those people reading news uh, letters from home. This was very important at that stage. And this is what this private said at one stage. Moving through the Karoo, I could not help noticing the Cape Colony was a desolate place. There being scarcely any inhabitants whatsoever. Back to Richard Devlin, an indicative of the kind of information that we managed to access. This was his personal diary. Just wrote it in the old diary, and the date you can see is just a few weeks after the Grobler uh, commander galloped into Colesburg. This kind of documentation obviously is very, very valuable for us. And we managed to get hold of five or six influential people's diaries. And just by the way, we also went into the, the, the basic issue of a diary. A diary is supposed to be a personal document. You should have write to yourself about your daily experiences or feelings and emotions and that, but it's not. The people who specialize in this kind of research confirm that people who write diaries actually write a diary for somebody else to read. And this we found with most of these diaries that we accessed. There's Devlin, playing billiards, as I said. And there you are, he had drinks, and eventually they took him uh, away. Next, please. Prominent people. Richard Devlin, you can see, is second from the left in the front. Nicely dressed up now, because uh, they had his boots on. Took him away with the other, some of the other prominent English British, Engelser, uh, residents of Colesburg. Headmaster of the Collegiate School, Arthur Scott, left back, for example, friar, stockkeeper, Reverend Craig, the Wesleyan minister. Uh, there was even a professor of music, as they called him, uh, Mr. Wilson, etc., etc. So they were put into the courthouse by the Boers within a day or two because they were prominent and they thought they might be influential in terms of what uh, might affect the Boer occupation of the town. This is a translated letter wrote, written by Hester Pinar from well-known farm even now today. It's on that map and even today the same family, descendants of, are still farming there. 
This is what she wrote to her father when she also, in the district, obtained this information, this news about what was happening. My darling father, as from yesterday, the town is in a very sad, terrible state. The burghers from the Free State moved in. Their flag is flying at the market square. And they took over the magistrate's court with magistrate and all. Yesterday they moved through the town 1,500 men, 37 wagons, not to mention the other carriages and the field guns. Ah, my darling father, what will happen? We hear everybody will be commandeered. Dear Papa, if Petrus must go, I don't know what I will do. Please pray for us. By the same token, Mr. Scott, the school principal, was commandeered by the Boers. So he had no uh, transport in that sense anymore. Ebb and flow and battle still. In the middle of that map you can see Colesburg. Just let us uh, be aware of that. And to the west is Colescorp, that round shaped hill. Just off the map to the north is the Orange River. Northeast is Norval's Pond that I mentioned before, and to the east, directly to the east from the town of Colesburg is the uh, Slingersfontein and other such farms that featured very prominently in this entire war. Within weeks, of French arriving at Noport in the south. He moved up and towards the west of Colesburg. They were camped at what is called Plateau Camp. I walked around there a number of times and I've got pictures. They were incredible recorders, the British were. We have pictures, all kinds of pictures. We have records of what happened from day to day and everything else. We have a picture of that camp, quite an extensive camp. And from there, one of the officers, Watson, and he hadn't consulted properly with General French about this, marched towards the north and then towards the east to a hill because they heard that the Boers might want to occupy that hill. The hill used to be called Graskop, then Grassy Hill, but because it was the Suffolk unit that went up the hill that night at midnight, just after midnight, about 12.30, they marched up the hill, and unfortunately for them, the Boers were aware, had seen or heard that they were intending to come up Suffolk Hill. So they were ensconced behind these sangers, and they were waiting. And they even put up some wire and tins so that they could, during the night, during the dark, could hear exactly where these advancing um, British soldiers were. They were asked by Watson to, or told by Watson, to wear soft shoes. I don't know if they were tackies at, those, at that stage, but they had to take off shoes so they could move silently. So they moved up the hill, but the Boers were waiting for them, and even as close as five yards, ten meters, they started shooting them at. And another of our private letters to home excerpt, just have a look at this. 
We had orders to lay flat on our faces to the ground. Then came a volley from about 30 paces. Private Cockle called it a slaughter, and each company fell like dead sheep. The bullets came over like a hailstorm. We were close to their rifles, and our men dropped down in all directions, three by the side of me. A lump of lead went past my ear and hit a poor fellow in front of me. Now that says something, he was running, he was trying to get away. If a bullet hit, hit somebody in front of him, having passed him, that's where he was heading. So I had to jump over him. The wounded were calling out for their mothers and fathers. We had to run for our lives and seek shelter. I got behind an ant heap, but had to retire again. One of my chums, Bridge, got shot through the head. It was all over in 10 minutes. One of the biggest and most significant defeats that the British suffered in the entire Anglo-Boer War. And what do they record about that? A slight reversal. And the well-known book, and I'll show you just now, an iconic kind of book on the Anglo-Boer War, has one sentence about Colesburg. One sentence, and he spells it incorrectly with a B-U-R-G instead of E-R-G. I'll show you just now. Keep that little secret there. A reversal. Just from Grassy Hill, let me just get my direction, which is northwest of Colesburg. Directly west of Colesburg is this hill called Colskop. Used to be Toverberg of Turenberg originally. There was a mission, in fact, for the so-called Bushmen, uh, named the Toverberg or Turenberg mission. But then into the picture came Sir Lowry Cole, and then Colescorp, and then Colesburg. A farmer took me on this uh, little trip for me to take this picture in his un unlicensed light plane. He also didn't have a license, the pilot, so it was quite an interesting uh, excursion. But that's what I got for my, my, my stress and my trouble. Remember Colescorp. This is what the British then did, French. They decided that, correctly, that Colescorp would be a strategically important place. It was elevated about Colesburg. It actually gave them visual access, and eventually, uh, in terms of their guns as well, to the lagers of the Boers, just south of Colesburg. So on the 11th of January, they dragged 15-pounders weighing 1,000 kilograms, two 15-pounder guns. These are the Royal Engineers assisted by the Essex Regiment. Took them three hours, and they put up a 426-meter hoist. You can see on the bottom right here to get the ammunition up there. Eventually set up the two 15-pounders and started bombarding the Boer lagers. Not so accurately because some people in Colesburg were, in fact, there was an individual killed in front of the doctor's uh, rooms right in the main street of Colesburg. 
and you'll see some other effects before. When they arrived there, I don't know whether this individual anticipated that, they found this note. We found, we actually accessed the original note. God bless President Kruger and the country we are fighting for. And let us have a finish to the bloody war. For England will never make a coward of the Boer, not if they send 50,000 khakis more. A hundred year, not celebration for some people, commemoration of the Anglo-Boer War uh, was arranged by the Colesburg people and the descendants of the Essex Regiment came out again. They now called the, the Coles Corp Essex Regiment thinking back to that particular day that they dragged those 15 pounders up there. So I was asked to just talk to them. We all went up that, <clears throat> that hill. It's a climb if you fit about our three quarters, maybe two hours to get to the top. See what they did with two 15 pounders, not weighing 15 pounds, but about a thousand uh, kilograms. So there they are, these pale descendants of the original Essex uh, regiment standing around me. And I shared those pictures. Look at the one at the right, on the right, at the top. Those are again pictures that the British took. And you can see the rock formations, you can see the rocks, you can see the 15-pounder. And I went up there a number of times and I thought, I actually found the exact position of one of the 15-pounders right there. So here these, these uh, people are standing around me and I explained to them exactly what I've just said. And I said, this is exactly where that 15-pounder was positioned, right here. And as I looked down, I saw something on the ground. And I picked it up. It was the firing pin of that cannon of 100 years before. One of them came to me often and said, you came up yesterday, you just put it down there for the effect of that. I said, oh, I wish I had. Further, it was interesting how uh, they interacted with the equivalent unit from South Africa. They also brought as many of the South Africans in, in uniform, and we all went up there for this 100-year commemoration. But they'd been discussing, the South Africans and the Essex guys, and they said, let's have a little competition tomorrow. So they put on their running shoes and their shorts, and somebody fired a, a rifle, and they took off in Colesburg. And one of the Essex Regiment guys won the race to the top. And he ran up there in 17 minutes, 46 seconds. The Burki was close behind him, but he came second. Interaction. When De La Rey came into the picture, things started happening in Colesburg. And this is towards the west of Colesburg. And he actually defeated Clemens who had now come into the picture after General uh, French. To the extent that they surprised him and they camped, there were 70 tents as they moved into that, uh, into that hollow where Clement's people had been camping. To the extent that the teapots and everything were still on the fire. They got rifles, they got ammunition, they got all sorts of things there. But then General Cronier of Modarafir, Paardeberg, got into trouble with 4,000 of his men to the north on the way to 
Kimberley actually went from Magusfontein to there and he was surrounded and eventually had to surrender with 4,000. So they called Delaray away from the Colesburg Theatre, if you like, to go and help him. He was too late and he was unsuccessful. But from that day, the whole activity around Colesburg turned in favour of the British. There's the book by Peckham that has one sentence on Colesburg. And furthermore, interesting about that book and other records of the British, at that time, or just before then, you had these incredible battles at Talana Hill, Elanslachte, Natal, Colenso, etc., etc. There were British defeats at Magusfontein, Stormberg, etc. Colesburg was an important supply line. The railway went through there to the north. Everything that you had to transport or wanted to transport had to go through Colesburg. In spite of all of that, not a word about Colescorp and how successful they were with those 15 pounders up there. Not a word about Suffolk Hill. Not a word about Slingersfontein where Clemens was defeated and had to run with thousands of his troops. Not a word in that book or many of the other British records. And they were such excellent recorders. Few reversals here and there, but none of this. The diarist that I mentioned, very useful. There's Maria Scholz, who was in bed with the Domini, it's her wife. Uh, Susan Noble from Noble's Pond. Her husband operated the, the pond across the, the uh, Orange River. And then uh, the Gardner sisters, the one sister particularly, kept a daily diary of great detail. Um, and then Jan F. Selier. He was one of the Commandant's Schrobler's uh, secretary, and he was camped with him up on, on a plateau just above and south of Colesburg. And this is where the 15-pounders would give them some trouble. Just a, a final word about diarists as such. I also mentioned Devlin. He had a, that excellent diary that I showed you some part of. And, of course, uh, Commandant Van Dam from the Pretoria Police Unit. He had an excellent, accurate, objective diary. Must just say this about, for example, Maria Scholes and the Gardner uh, diarist. They were subjective. You had to read the two to sort of more or less find an accurate version of what actually happened from day to day. General Grobler mentioned him. Wrote a letter. We actually obtained the letter, the original handwritten, beautiful handwriting in pen and with pen and ink that he wrote to General Clemens. Dear General, may I suggest that we take a day off? He gave the date in order to have a friendly game of cricket between our forces. If you should agree, a small favour though, could you perhaps supply a bat, a cricket ball, wickets and even pads if you might? This letter we found in possession of the descendants of the general, handwritten the original one still. We've put it in this book of ours, uh, Forgotten Front. 
but it's, it's uh, the replica, the copy wasn't all that successful. This is the kind of thing between humans that happens even in warfare. Now, second point there. Prisoners captured by the British force of Colesburg were three Boer women, but they were wearing men's clothing, and only when they took them to the prison ship at Cape Town did they find out that these were actual females who were fighting with the men. Now, Stevenson Hamilton, just south of Colesburg, was put in charge of an area uh, near the farm of Jasfontein. Now, that farm is also still there. It's on that map, and today you can still visit Jasfontein. And standing on the veranda of this farmhouse of Jasfontein, he saw these two Cape Cods coming along. Each one had a girl on. So he separately, on two separate Cape Cods, they came up to the house, and in a friendly way, he said, okay, come, step down, and come and visit with us. Now, the soldiers, his men, who were not on duty, were inside, just relaxing and waiting their turn to go on patrol. So the girls went inside, they were given tea, and Stevenson Hamilton, still standing on the veranda, looking out for possible Boer patrols and everything, and he heard the piano being played inside, and there was some singing, and then there was some giggling, and then he went to look what was going on. There was even some kissing. So he sent the two girls back to Colesburg. Okay, this is Jan Salier, the Commandant's secretary. Daily life in that lager where, if you know Colesburg at all, where the high school is now, that's where they were situated. Quite exposed for those 15 pounders from Colesburg until they moved the lager. And this is some of the experiences that he records. They called another gunner that app there that went they called it the Kachlachter, as Afrikaans people call that bird. It's a kind of babbler. And they would play with a karvats, it's a horsewhip. And you'd have a turn, you have the karvats, and then you chase people. And if you manage to hit somebody, he has to take the karvats and you have to run away. And even the general joined in on that. They're running around the wagons and beating each other with the karvats. Because it was very, very uh, monotonous being in a lager if you're not actually fighting or whatever the case may be. The Duomini gave a service there at one stage and the 15-pounder let loose and the Duomini had to dive under a wagon to get away from it. The same Jan Salier was reading a letter from home for the third or fourth time uh, and lying on a feather bed under a wagon to be in the shade, slightly cooler. And one of the 15-pounders let loose and actually hit the feather bed next to me and was covered in feathers. <coughs> They had to keep dodging these salvos behind the copies. They would wait and, and until the cannon fires, and then they'd gallop past the gap and then wait behind the copy again, part of what they experienced. Much more personal, oh, the pretty youngsters. He said, some of these young boys, can you imagine? Maybe you have a stereotypical sort of picture of a, a boer with his mauser and his rifle. Jan Salier records these nicely combed, starched collars, young Boers from Johannesburg and elsewhere have come now into the lager to come and fight. He says they even smelt nice and sweet. So, 
part of his environment at that stage. During his stay there, they brought in the personal effects of two dead men, two Britishers who had been shot just short, just at the foot of Coles Corp. And these documents included a pack of photographs, amongst others a picture of a young woman or a girl, and another of a little girl, probably that of a child or a little sister. And that person, that man, the brother or father, would never see them again. He was also asked to accompany some of the British prisoners to Pretoria. At that stage, the Boers still had accommodation for prisoners. Eventually, they couldn't even do that anymore, anymore they had to let them go. <clears throat> and he went with Tommy, as they called him, Tommy Atkins, the British. And he recorded that they felt humiliation, humiliation on England's, uh, of England's army. And they were so delighted that they had now been captured, and they don't have to actually face the Boers anymore. As they passed through a station, Celia records, they would shout, we're okay now, we're okay now, we're going up to Pretoria. So they're very happy and they would chat, they would sing, they would share jokes and laughter. This two opposing sets of people. Okay, Van Damme, General Van Damme, he had this big man fighting uh, for him and they took some prisoners at one stage and one of them was a, a, a smallish sort of guy and he grabbed this guy and he put him up on a, lifted him up and put him down so Van Damme, his general his uh, commanding officer said uh, he heard this Sit young, is no so the general asked him what does he want to do with this guy and he said, Commandant, I will mak mak and I will Hollands leer. Want to tie me and I will teach him some Dutch. <clears throat> okay, now Jane Gardner, one of those sisters, Dyrus. Remember what I said about how they view their particular circumstances. Since firing began quite early in the day and rifle shooting, it was very dangerous to walk out. The bullets were coming into the town in showers. Several had very narrow escapes of being shot. Our opposite neighbor had a piece taken away of the veranda and a hole in the wall. Mrs. Willow went to a house next to Mr. Scotts, who was the principal, you remember. She had been watering her plants, paused to look over Colescope when a bullet struck the front of her hat, leaving a dent. Much too close to be pleasant. Oh, so came the British occupation. Clements, uh, as I said, when Delaray moved off, the uh, British started uh, gaining ascendancy and eventually galloped into town as well. Now, two versions of that particular experience. Again, Jane Gardner. Colesburg relieved, hurrah. This morning, 12.30, a shout. Come, the soldiers are coming up the street. Away we all run. That's uh, not me, that's all run. Servants too, dinner left to cook itself. Sure enough, there came a troop of the, and that was indistinct, we don't know which lances they were. They halted on the market square. One can never describe the feeling of relief. We could not realize that we were indeed free once more. On the troops came several hundreds. They had dozens of flags, Union Jacks, 
hidden away. There were not many minutes before they were brought out, Union Jacks, that's what she's implying. Every man, woman, child, white and black, mounted the red, white and blue. Now Maria Skolz, Mevrouw Dominie Skolz, oh God, another second judgment day. When the burghers came in, I shed bitter tears as I knew it was bringing us trouble. The British troops came in about two o'clock under General Clements. If they had only come in November, all his misery would have been spared us. My darling husband was taken prisoner at about three o'clock. They took to Dormany and locked him up. When I saw him go, I felt as if I would thank God if he allowed the earth to swallow me up. Oh, misery above misery. All the Afrikaners in town have been taken, and I expect Dickie, that's their son who came down the passage earlier, will also be brought in soon as he stood night watch. Now, all these proclamations is what the British brought. Uh, movement was uh, inhibited. Uh, property was commandeered, particularly wagons, uh, animals, and of course, uh, foodstuffs as well. On the right is a blockhouse that was in Colesburg. The materials were eventually used for other purposes, so you don't see it anymore. Near the uh, pond at Nolvals Pond is one of these blockhouses. It's now a private residence turned into a very comfortable abode. And that's a rice fort just north of Colesburg as you travel on the N1 near Springfontein. Look to the left and you'll find Blackie de Swart actually uh, reconstructed that rice fort. It was a, a quick fix as opposed to these blockhouses that took a long time, a lot of material uh, to build. That rice fort they could do literally within 24 four hours. But 8,000 such structures were built eventually. 60,000 British troops had to uh, man them as it were, or be guards. 25,000 local black and brown guards were also used, and that time already it cost a million pounds. Lord Roberts eventually took over, and he was the person who ordered the burning of farms. Incidentally, not only burning of farms, anywhere close to the railway line, if they were suspicious of assistance from the local population, they also burned down and ransacked the villages of black people, kraals, kraals as they called them at that stage. Not only the farms, but he gave the order, and this is how Rudyard Kipling describing, oh, is little and is wise, is a terror for his size. His successor, Lord Kitchener, became infamous for what he and the British then called refugee camps, where they accommodated uh, wives, farmers' wives, children, and the older people. There was one at Norvalspawn, close to Colesburg, as well, eventually established there. One of the better ones, incidentally, well-managed, as opposed to some of the others. Thank you. Rations. Those were for refugees. In other words, people who willingly came into these camps because they couldn't function on the farms or wherever anymore, and then the undesirables were captured and forced into these camps. And you can just see that's for a, 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 a tent family, six, seven people sometimes, and that they had to use uh, for a week. 
those sorts of supplies. Thank you. At that time, the Boers had stopped the Colesburg advertiser because it was anti them and negative. Then a handwritten newspaper came to the fore. You could buy it for one penny at that stage. And at the different sections, one for no it was called no notes. And Norval spawned that points from the pond. And at the junction, railway junction, there was juttings from the junction. And then Connie's confidences. Now that was Skinner uh, second to none. It did report on Boer. This we, we're into the guerrilla force now. Guerrilla force or guerrilla fighting phase of the force uh, of the war at that stage. So it did report on such. But it mostly had information about the ladies and the gentlemen playing cricket, polo matches, hare hunting, dances and dinners, birthday parties, picnics and the debating society meetings. And then they had this little limerick as where there was a gay major, a gunner, where dances and balls was a, a winner. Each matron and maid, they one and all said, as a partner, our major is a stunner. So there was a lot of social activity while this guerrilla phase of the war was waging. There's an invitation, for example, to such an occasion. That's the refugee or concentration camp close to Norwas Pond. It's the one that served Colesburg and the Southern Free State as it were. Now they had a masked ball at that time as well at Norwas Pond. It lasted till early morning, two or three o'clock. These ladies were dancing with these uh, interesting majors and others. And while waiting for the train to go back to Colesburg, and this is recorded, this is what one of the ladies wrote. We amused ourselves in various ways. Some were driven to the refugee concentration camp, which is quite a sight with its 3,000 inhabitants living in tents, which are so well ordered as a brigade camp of regulars. Almost all the refugees have built themselves mud ovens. Now, quote, fancy those brutes burning wood by the ton while we can hardly get a scrap was a remark of one justly indignant member of our party. More, as the burghers or the Boers called them, the khakis, uh, a lot of looting and ransacking took place when the British occupied Colesburg, but ditto when the Boers occupied Colesburg as well, including the, the Mayor Plumen's house at Kailfontein, which is a wonderful stall there, stall descendants of the family living in, at Kailfontein, Cape Dutch style, lovely place. Martial law, and then picnics and parties, dances, debating society, as I said, but also executions then started. Because people, individuals, the young men who joined the Boers from the Free State and the Transvaal Republic were in Colesburg, living in Colesburg, Cape Colony. They were rebels. And this is what happened. There's Colescorp in the back, and ten armed men escorting the first such execution, Niklas van Wyk, to his execution on the 11th of November 1901 in the hospital wagon. I walked around in that area quite a lot and found at that execution site this little metal button. 
he also found catons, the debris, if you like, of war. Nails for horse lions and for putting up their tents and so on. And forgot to mention just now, here's one of those 15-pounder shells. It was found in a lager. If you have a close look at this with the shrapnel and everything, it's quite a, a scary sort of sight. More executions. Just note, the Fienstraub youngster came from Holland to fight with the Boers, and Toy came from Sweden to fight with the Boers, also then classified as rebels, and they were executed. What happened was they would dig a grave before the ex execution, and such an individual would be tied with rope to a, a wooden chair which they found in the Dutch Reformed Church Hall, those wooden upright chairs. Time to that chair and then position them in front of the prepared grave and they would fire and it would fall over backwards into the grave. They would retrieve the chair and then cover the grave after the execution. Billy Lowe, from a very well-known family, Ian Samait in the district, he's buried on the farm, uh, is Billy Lowe. This caused uh, incredible um, emotional outbursts, etc., in the town. Also because he came from such a prominent and well-known family. We have all the letters that he wrote and received up to an hour before they took him out to be shot. <clears throat> okay. Other South Africans, I've been talking about the Anglo-Boer War, more accurately the South African War. You can see in the book that I showed you just now, it says the Boer War. It's not only the Boer War, it's not only the Anglo-Boer War, it's the South African War, because black people played a very prominent role in the war as well. Even some of them were armed and died on both sides. When a farmer, a Boer, left his farm, you and us would saddle up and without discussion in that and follow his employer into battle, as it were. They called them achterreiers, auxiliaries, and this happened. But the British also put some of these people in uniform and eventually also in concentration camps, but separate concentration camps. Tens of thousands of South African black and brown people and descendants of the early Kham or Bushmen of the Karoo were also uh, involved in this way. So it wasn't a white man's war and it certainly was not a gentleman's war. This is during the British occupation, some of the documentation that I managed to happen upon. All colored people are ordered to vacate tenements in the town and are called upon to remove to the native location. And all colored inhabitants are commanded to obey such orders as the municipal authorities may. You're just in front of the screen a bit. Mike, you're just obscuring that a bit. Municipal may issue to them under the penalty of arrest or punishment under martial law. Very much involved were those people. Much 
such publication is now prevalent. That's one example. Just bringing to the fore the other South Africans who were also involved in this confrontation. And of course, no, not of course, and women, very prominently. One example, a certain Barlow is a reporter for The Friend, who was pro-Boer, incidentally, this English newspaper in, in Bloemfontein at that time. He was walking around, this is during the Boer occupation, uh, with the magistrate Johannes von Sale. And here they saw a woman wearing a black riding habit, mounted on a great black stallion. She was watching a small scrap from a little hill, a little copy outside Colesburg, watching how the British and the Boers were firing at each other. And they walked a bit closer, and as we approached, she drew a steel dagger and threatened us. I heard she was a princess from Czechoslovakia. In the concentration camps, of course, the, the women played an incredibly prominent, important role, as did the wives of the Boers left behind on the farms. Some of them eventually ended up taking ox wagons, taking supplies, taking chickens, sheep, and following the men into the field, or going off, particularly when the farms were burned down. Incidentally, the farm burn down issue never occurred in Colesburg district in the Cape Colony as such, only in the Free State and in Transvaal, Transvaal Republic. And you remember the courthouse captives, those prominent Englishmen with the Boers put, in the, uh, put away in the courthouse? Their wives would be allowed to bring them tea on a tray. And the actual cloth on the tray was a Union Jack, just to inspire them a bit. They were served tea on a Union Jack, and then they were brought books to read. And there was a little signal before so they know what the books are all about. And what those women did, they would mark a particular let letter throughout the book and give them information of the actual progress of the war as opposed to what the Boers told them, that the Boers were winning and defeating the British left, right and centre. So they got the actual messages through these books, through marked letters throughout the, the book as it were. And then of course speaks for itself, the nurses did incredible work on both sides throughout this war. Then came peace, 31st of May 1902, and there were different responses and reactions to that. And now we really back to the human factor in this kind of confrontation. Magistrate, the town hall, it's now a magistrate's court, at least situated in that spot. Victory ce celebrations. Some, I think most people were relieved that the war was over. But those who had strong Boer family, the Boer families who had strong ties with their combatants found the news devastating, of course. The war changed their outlook on life. Like other civilians in the country, they were just ordinary people, caught up in an extraordinary conflict, not of their making. To make matters worse, bitterness had developed between English and Dutch or Afrikaans communities. And to this day, subliminally almost, there's still sometimes this kind of feeling. Now we're 122 years hence, but you'll see. Much evidence all over town, at the foot of Coles Corp, we'll see just now as well. Um, 
school children are taken there and the attempt is to, to help them to understand what happened all those years ago. This conference, the international conference, was held at the end of 2019 to celebrate this 100 year, not celebrate, commemorate this 100 year um, war. People came from all over, from England, from New Zealand, a lot of Australians. There was a lot of Australian activity, incidentally, around Colesburg at that time, from, from Canada. And here we presented papers, and the British presented papers, Australians presented papers, and after a session we'd have tea, it was 31 degrees in Bloemfontein at that stage, and our British colleagues wore suits and ties, and there was no shelter, and the perspiration would be running down. And we dressed rather informally. In fact, one day I wore this and the person said, am I sympathizing with the khakis? I said, no, it's just coincidental that I happened, happened to be wearing this shirt at the time. But during the sessions, I remember Lee Enfield, British rifle, Mauser. This person would present a paper and there'd be a question from the floor. Excuse me. Could I kindly just disagree with you and ask you this question? And the first thing, of course, colleague, please pose your question. I'm sitting in the corner as an anthropologist observing this, and what I see is... <laughs> reliving that sort of confrontation. But it was rewarding. Not only academics, not only historians were there, engineers were there from England. And they did research and could explain to us how within two days of the Boers wrecking a bridge, they would have repaired to extent and have access across the river again. Engineers, archaeologists, dietitians, historians, a lot of them, all coming together in a more or less civilized way, discuss what happened 120 years before. Some golfers uh, around might recognize that person. Our Gary player, he designed, he was asked, he used to have a farm near Norvos Point, um, on the way to Norvos Point which he has sold now, and he was asked to design the greens and the tees for the golf course outside Colesburg. You don't do fairways in the Karoo. You don't do it in, in uh, certainly not in Colesburg. But you have whitewashed stones. If you go beyond the whitewashed stone, you're in the rough. If you're on this side of the whitewashed stone, you hit off AstroTurf. This is your fairway that you carry with you. So, now I'll use different names. On a particular day, not so long ago, two neighboring young farmers, Jan Smith and John Smith, were playing their regular Saturday game of golf. And Jan Smith sliced the ball and went beyond the whitewash stones. And he's looking for his ball, looking for his ball, and eventually came up with a cartridge 
He looked at it, identified it as a Lee Enfield cartridge. And he shouted to John Smith, to John Smith, who was on the fairway, who was on his little mat. And of course he had a response from the fairway and they went off. 120 years later on a golf course because they found something lying in the rough. It's a reality. That's at the foot of Kolskop. It was put up uh, when those people came to celebrate the 100 years. Thank you. Now, standing on top of Kolskop or Suffolk one thinks of this, I've got the book here, you all or many of you will know this writer's book, Commando. And Jan Smuts, Jan Christian Smuts wrote this in the preface. Wars pass, but the human soul endures. The interest is not so much in the war as in the human experience behind it. The intimate picture gives us the inner truth of the war. We see how human beings react under the most terrible stresses to the passion of patriotism. Not too long ago, I was back in Colesburg and I, was, I stood more or less to the side of Suffolk Hill and looked up, it was midday, looked up towards Colescorp and I saw a glint of the sun on glass. And I tried to look carefully and I'm almost sure I saw General French with his field glasses having a look around the district of Colesburg. Thank you.